Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. And these sharks, they aren't just breaking down doors for the sheer joy of it, are They're after us. Jim and I use gene therapists to increase their brain mass. Larger brain means more protein. As a side effect, the sharks got smarter. Today, as part of our Bargain Bin series, we'll be discussing Deep Blue Sea. Starring Saffron Burroughs. 200,000 men and women develop Alzheimer's each year. What if you could end all that suffering with a single pill? Thomas Jane. They're hunting in packs like wild dogs. They'll only eat other sharks. Stellan Skarsgård. Sharks are the oldest creatures on the planet. From a time when the world was just flesh. LL Cool J. My name is Sherman Dutton. This message finds you that I did not survive, so this is my legacy. And Samuel L. Jackson. These sharks are thinking hard and clear. So here's the riddle. What does an 8,000 pound Mako shark with a brain the size of a flathead V8 engine and no natural predator think Directed by Rennie Harlan. And what you've done is taken God's oldest killing machine and given it will and desire. What you've done is knock us all the way to the bottom of the goddamn food chain. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Man-made terror, hungry jaws of death. You all don't cross my decks, I'll pause your breaths. I cause you to sink down 40,000 leagues, leading to death with no arms and sleeves. It's Galley in Glasgow. Vodka, straight. And by the way, food is excellent, brother. It's Matt from South Korea. Oh, hello, Matt, and welcome back, listeners, to the show. And once again, we've been left out at sea with Devlin in Italy, trying to discover when it will be his Dolmio day, and Patrick frolicking around on set with Tom Hardy and Timothy Oliphant. You have just myself and Matt extracting all the brain power we can from my choice of a bargain bin. Rennie Harlan's 1999 shark movie, Deep Blue Sea. Matt, firstly, how are you getting on, buddy? Fine. Uh, yeah, well, I don't have any weddings to go to. I'm not working on a on a, a Netflix movie, so uh, we're we're, uh, we're we're degenerating our brain cells with a bit of Rennie Harlan. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because we are the two that constantly refer to the the dwellers of the basement, and here we are, sat alone with just our thoughts. So we don't have anywhere better to be than no. uh, <laughs> to, to discuss Deep Blue Sea. This is my Friday night. I've, I've, got, a, <laughs> I've got a lovely a big wave gold nail here. I've themed my, my beer and uh, I'm looking forward to discussing Deep Blue Sea with you. Well, Matt, I guess we will start with what is your relationship with Deep Blue Sea? Right. Well, this was the first DVD I ever watched. Uh, it was around the year 2000. My mate Sam ordered it from America, or I actually ordered it for him for some reason. Uh, we were looking at these dodgy sites, and I don't think we were quite sure if they were on the level or whether the DVDs were actually going to work when they arrived. But it's something that seemed shady about it. Um, so this was the first Region 1 uh, that I put into my PC, and it had like a region coding thing that you could change, but you could only do it so many times. Um so I tested it out and I was wowed by the clarity and the sound and uh, the ability to pause with total clarity. You could skip chapters and the had like an A, B repeat button. All these things were like amazing to someone who grew up with 
VHS, um, slow motion, stop frame, frame by frame. So once we knew it worked, we immediately got into Region 1 DVDs and uh, we went to Tesco, of all places, and got uh, this Wharfdale DVD player. It's 179 quid. I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, you could hack it and you could play Region 1s on that too. So I immediately got Fight Club and uh, we, we learned a bunch. We were doing a media course, so we learned from the commentaries and the making ofs. And uh, Deep Blue Sea was very first one that we got around that time so uh yeah uh i i remember are we doing spoilers immediately or not no yeah go well yeah go go into spoilers i mean yeah you've got a warning at the beginning right so uh, i remember what i recall was being shocked by the death of samuel l jackson but i didn't retain too much else from it but through doing a bit more research i realized i'd seen it perhaps five or maybe six times since so, uh, and I think I revisited it maybe a year or two ago. So it was quite fresh in my mind. So, uh, but, but I had never looked at it in as much depth as, as we're going to today. So, uh, I should ask you really, you're, it's, it's actually your pick. So why did you choose, uh, to revisit Deep Blue Sea? Well, I think it's fertile ground for a bargain bin. The way that we categorize the bargain bin is that it's a, it's, normally deemed as slightly lesser than your you know it's not going to make any any encyclopedic lists of greatest films or anything like that but it's ubiquitous and you hit the nail on the head um i think i had this on dvd and i think i had the brendan Fraser, not very funny but liz hurley looked great bedazzled you remember that bedazzled yeah i do but it but it wasn't really because it was the first dvd that i picked it they don't make films like this anymore uh, mm. And I wanted to get into that um, mid mid budget kind of B movie, but with high production values. Uh, we'll get into star casts, maybe not, but but certainly mm. the production values and recognised director. Um, so, Rennie Harlan, Die Hard Two, Cliffhanger, Cutthroat Island. Less said about that, but <laughs> you know what I mean. So people know a good, the long kiss goodnight so everyone yeah. i think of a certain age has grown up with those films like him or loathe him you know who rennie harlan is nightmare four as well was a reference to nightmare me, yeah nightmare four and and we we discussed him in our alien three uh review because mm. he was originally attached and i remember in the uh anthology documentaries he's on there and he's talking about like you know there's just corridors and aliens and it's nothing different uh, so, right. i don't know what he doesn't sound like arnold schwarzenegger he's from finland but you know <laughs> yeah. forgive me i'm coming back to it from a kind of place of want and need in my life that i kind of want a deep blue sea to get released now and i just mm. don't know where it lives uh, i'm not sure that they necessarily exist they get made these types of stories with these kind of schlocky premises but they are tend to be low budget on sci-fi channel you know i'm looking to you sharknado that kind of thing but i think mm. deep blue sea is way better made than that so um i guess i'm looking at it from a place of nostalgia but yeah so i think that's why um and and we are we've been avoiding doing jaws on the show you know i i would find it really hard to talk about that one because that one is the one that i put down as my absolute favorite of all time so to 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 start looking into shark movies is actually a really interesting 
subgenre because there's the, the the daddy of them all, and then there's kind of everything else. But we'll 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 get into some of them today. Yeah, I agreed, and I think you can you could probably categorize Deep Blue Sea if you don't want to go super niche as a shark movie as a creature mm. feature, which yeah. kind of broadens the net a little bit. Um, so we'll we'll get into that. But but Matt, would you would you like a plot synopsis? Of I Deep can't Blue wait sea? to hear it. Yeah, are you going to wrap it? Uh, no, and if you thought I was rapping on my intro line, then that's it. again, that's how sad and lonely I am. I can't even rap. Well, I, I but, don't know much about hip hop, so I was conned. I, I thought that was rapping, so there you go. In a remote underwater facility, doctors Susan McAllister, played by Saffron Burroughs, and Jim Whitlock, played by Stellan Skarsgård, are conducting research on Mako sharks to help in the reactivation of dormant human brain cells like those found in Alzheimer's disease patients. The problem is, the shark's brains aren't large enough to harvest enough of the protein complex. So, the good doctors violate the Harvard Compact and use gene therapies to increase the shark's brain mass. A larger brain means more protein. As a side effect, the sharks get smarter. After one of the sharks escapes the facility and attempts to attack a boat full of 90s douchebag teens, Financial backers send corporate executive Russell Franklin, Samuel L. Jackson, to investigate the facility. Dr. Susan and a skeleton crew, including shark wrangler and former smuggler Carter, played by Thomas Jane, New York's finest engineering mind Tom, played by Michael Rappaport, and God-fearing, large-ass crucifix-wearing in no way will be relevant in the end chef Preacher, played by LL Cool J, will all find the answer to life's greatest riddle. Exactly what an 8,000 pound Mako with a brain the size of a flathead V8 and no natural predators thinks about in the deep blue sea. Oh, terrific. Thank you. I didn't want to give away any spoilers because you kind of already have talked about the, um, probably the most talked about aspects of this movie. The most memorable scene, yeah, yeah, for me anyway. Yeah, and I've seen it in lists, you know, Vulture and The Wire and the, you know, cinema's most shocking twists. <laughs> I, I'm not convinced that Deep Blue Sea's up there with Janet Lee and Psycho, but no. I understand, I understand what they're going for. And, yeah. uh, I've got to say the first time I saw it, <laughs> you, Matt, can you, can you corroborate this possible mm. BS story that I remember hearing when I watched Deep Blue Sea back in 99, 2000? My understanding was that the reason why Samuel L. Jackson got killed and it looks so dreadful. Yeah. Cause I mean, it literally, the shark comes out like a punch and Judy puppet and he, and his body turns into like a mortal combat sprite as well. It's like really dreadful. Like uh, it looks un- unfinished. It looks really bad. Well, and this is it. So the rumor I heard, and this is obviously kind of early days of internet was that mm. Samuel L. Jackson thought that the film was so bad that he just wished to be remove himself so they killed him unceremoniously at the time i was convinced that that was the reason why it looked so schlocky so i shrugged and just went well yeah they had to do what they had to do otherwise they had no samuel L. jackson i thought it was the the cheapo version of the janet lee psycho thing that you just mentioned but i through doing a bit of research i believe he was going to play the ll cool j part and his uh agents didn't like the idea of him being in a kitchen the whole time so <laughs> they said why don't you uh why don't you play this other part or an- another thing i saw said that they wrote that part specifically for samuel l jackson uh so which was uh, uh 
shorter screen time, uh, not so many filming days. And, uh, and that's why my friend Sam in the lead up to this said, Oh, it, it was Sam Jackson just taking the money is what it was. But I mean, that could have been the case too. Also, I think they shot on location in the Bahamas, uh, for a little while at least, which he got to go to. And then they got stuck in the, uh, in the wet sets after that. So, uh, I don't know. Who knows? The, the, the old Michael Caine tradition of short movies oh, for, for money. <laughs> Jaws 4. Yeah. Let's, let's hang out in Jamaica or the Bahamas or whatever it is. Mm. Well, I, I think his agents are correct though, because at this point in 99, Samuel L. Jackson really can only play high status characters. Like his days mm. of breaking into McDowell's as, as like, thug who robs yeah. mcdowell's are kind of done <laughs> yeah. so i think that was the right instinct you know he's mm-hmm. and and actually you know what you don't get african-american characters who are the richest man on on the planet kind of no. vibe so i i thought it was i i thought it was quite smart and i quite like the look like i think he looks good in the movie and it works yeah. I, I like the bits with the cigar i could watch him smoke that cigar all night mm-hmm. uh i also like the way sam jackson plays the hollywood game i think he's not afraid to make films like this and he's got a really mm. diverse filmography i still like all the quentin stuff best and the spike lee stuff but um he, there's a part of him that likes to make these monster movies like uh, snakes on a plane and and things yeah, like well, that. Yeah, well this is you could argue this is this is his first iteration of snakes mm. on a plane, you know. And yeah. and actually, let's be fair, snakes on a plane wishes it was deep blue sea. Uh, I mean because that film was yeah. was pretty bad. Beyond the title there's not much going on there. Yeah, at all. yeah, for for an intentional kind of goofy spoof, it's it's really not very funny and not very mm. high octane. Uh, but anyway, that's a different that's a different creature feature. Yeah, we won't pick that one, don't worry. I was trying to place myself in and I was looking at all the films that were being released around the, you know, two years either side of 99. Rennie Harlan, Cutthroat Island. I'm not suggesting that he's not to blame for Carol Coe's demise, but for for the lo- for the longest time that was that was the you know, that was the bit of mud that stuck to Rennie Harlan's name, which is, yeah. oh, you made that pirate movie that sunk a studio. So four yeah. years later from Cutthroat Island, uh, Village Roadshow Pictures are giving him 80 million to make a B movie shark film, which yeah. seems extraordinary because that does not happen in 2021. Is it as daft as something like Titanic being a success? And they're all like, we, they like water movies. Let's make another water <laughs> movie. You know, I, I feel like marketing and all this shit like that, it's just a waste of time. Like, you can't really predict it. And I don't know why they choose to to go with these trends because I really don't think audiences behave like that. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, mm. I, did you hear what Thomas Jane described this as? On the red carpet, he said, uh, this is Jaws 2000. And then he said, uh, he goes, you take Jaws, Alien, and Frankenstein, and you roll them up, and you fire them out of a cannon, and that's Deep Blue Sea. And he, he had all these things prepped that he was telling the, the journalists on the red carpet. But it sounds like he's got more energy in that red carpet than he did on screen, I'm afraid. Yeah, he, bizarre guy. Yeah. Do you think they chase the next big shark movie? Is that what they're doing? No, I don't think so. Because, well, look at... So I was having a look at the previous shark films outside of the Jaws sequels. And there, there weren't that many about. I just... I wonder if it's just that case of it's been a decade since we've done one. Let's mm. see if there's an appetite for it. And actually, in line with those creature features that were coming out at the time. So, you know, Anaconda, 
late Placid. I think late, late Placid came out the same year. So you know how you get the, Do- the Dante's Peak volcano, different studios, yes. same specs. I wonder if there's a little bit of that going on, but I think, mm. you know, enough time had passed for another shark movie. I'd wondered if studios are constantly chasing like this idea of another Jaws. Like Jaws pervades over everything still. And it's this elusive box office bonanza that studios don't really understand, but they're trying to recreate it. But I think this idea of a shark movie uh, being this massive blockbuster is actually a misreading of what Jaws is. Like Jaws is not really just about the shark. Like I I always go on about this. I was going to do it all in my Jaws one, but I don't know if I'll ever get around to it. One of the oldest stories ever written, if not the oldest, is called The Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's a, an overcoming the monster story. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's what Jaws kind of comes down to. It's about the character's interactions with a monster. And in doing, uh, in, in trying to conquer this beast, uh, it, it's how the characters relate to one another and the, the drama of uh, of being the three guys on that boat. Um, and also the way the, the suspense was delivered in Jaws because the shark didn't work. Spielberg had to resort to all of these amazing tricks, like the barrels popping up and the jetty gets dragged out and just seeing the fin and just John Williams music. So it's, it's not just about a shark. Uh, of, of course it was marketed that way and sharks can be a terrifying concept to people like they say people didn't go back in the water after they saw jaws but uh this is a very different kind of thing this kind of feels more like uh, uh an amusement park ride or something it's uh it's kind of very heightened yeah no that's that's where my my thinking was going as well this is mm. pure adrenaline roller coaster ride you know with a bit of mean violence and i i, I... <laughs> I think this is an elevator pitch. To me, this is like, right, what if, you know, you took nature's greatest predator and gave it, mm-hmm. I think they even say it like, gave it a, a will and a desire and a gender. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's like, it's an elevator pitch. It's like, well, yeah, well, what if sharks could actually, instead of just being, cause I think, uh, Hooper describes it in Jaws as like, all this thing does is an eating uh, machine. Eat, eat. Eat, sleep, and make babies. Well, this <laughs> yeah. is, th- these sharks, these sharks are dastardly. And actually, you know what was? <laughs> They've got grins and everything. Yeah. Well, I, I wish one of them winked. I swear I saw one wink. But anyway, <laughs> the, what I found fascinating is that remove an IP and give me the same type of movie and I'm on board for it. So I'm not giving away too many of my sandwiches. But when we discussed Alien Resurrection, I really struggle with the mental gymnastics of understanding the aliens being so <laughs> present and, and intelligent enough to create traps for their yes. human prey. Whereas in this, because we don't have the weight of the alien series and the, and the canon and the previous movies that started off as super serious and then moved mm. into kind of schlock, French, farcical, dark comedy, I was so much easier to get on board with this film and i will start with the beginning because i think the opening boat attack on the douchebags on the douchebags i think that is it you if if you're looking at it you know you you mentioned nightmare on elm street he is tapping into his nightmare on elm street uh you know filmmaking instincts which is right Mm -hmm. let's get a bunch of douchey teens 
And uh, it, one of the lines by him is like, we're having a party, man. Woo. <laughs> and like, and you're, you're immediately like, well, there's a bit after that as well. It's really low in the mix. He goes, uh, yeah, the boats are rocking. Even one of them was like, did you feel something? Yeah, I felt something. It's like, you're right. I immediately want, I immediately want these lot to like get their comeuppance. Did you feel something? Yeah, I feel something. <laughs> hey, get back here. <laughs> I think Rennie Harlan knows what, what sandbox he's playing in. And I think we talked about it in Alien Resurrection, which is where can you go with that series other than farce and dark comedy? And I mm. think that's what they looked at. It's like you, you're never going to top Jaws. You're not going to make it as deeply primal and terrifying as actually a great white shark could be looming, could attack you at any time, the Kitna boy. So we mm. do this, which is let's make them like the snarling, sniveling villains and let's have a really kind of goofy premise that allows us yeah. to to have a, a roller coaster ride. You described it perfectly because that's how I saw it. This is so set piece driven that the characters are somewhat frivolous in the end. I would have said exactly the same if I hadn't watched this thing today that suggested that Rennie Harlan was trying to reinvent the late 70s big budget horrors. And he cited Jaws, The Shining and The Exorcist as being references uh, for what he was trying to do. So I I don't know how much... How, how far he continued that idea and whether it actually went, went into the filmmaking. But the, the one connection that I managed to draw was the, the Stellan Skarsgård stuff. Cause he looks like he's in a different movie. He looks like he's in a William Friedkin movie. I, actually, I prefer a lot of what he's doing to some of the winking that's, that's going on around it. Um, but where that tone comes from is a bit of an unknown. I couldn't really get to the bottom of it. I don't really know exactly what Rennie was going for. Well, let's, let's dissect Rennie Harlan because we've mentioned him several times on the show before because I always use him as, as a kind of an example of a director. You're a fan, with, right? I, I think for what he, what he does, he's very good at, which is delivering those, those kind of, well, we, in Young Guns 2, uh, Jeff Murphy, it's those moments mm. that you're, whilst you're watching a film for, you know, 90 minutes to two hours that you can get swept along by. It's not gonna, <laughs> the nutritional value is probably quite low, but <laughs> it's junk food, but for the moment you're in it. And, and like Cliffhanger yeah. is a great example. Like, so he makes, yep. to me, Die Hard 2 is the worst of, of all the diehards. But I still think that it's... Well, not not once we get to four, surely. Oh, oh yeah, apologies. Sorry. Uh, the, of the original three, I say original yeah. three, like the, the other two. Is it two or three that don't count? How many have they made? Uh, I, I just consider it a... I consider it a trilogy. And once he starts fighting uh, uh, aircraft jet carriers and whatever he's fighting, yeah, I'm I'm over it. But I, I like two, but I do think three surpasses two. Uh, partly because of Sam Jackson. He's true. Yeah, yeah. Two, two's quite nuts and bolts. Um, but 
I think it's it's competently made. I think the action mm-hmm. set pieces that you know everyone remembers the John McClane seat explosion up in the air yeah. to camera and then down. So I think he's got that in his locker. You know, Cliffhanger is exactly the same. One of the best opening scenes to any action film I can think of, right? Which he nods to in Deep Blue Sea. Um when Thomas Jane is hanging from the uh from the ladder. I think he knows what he's doing. I think he's got a level. And I guess my question to you is, because I know that you're a, a huge Michael Bay fan, or certainly a bigger Michael Bay fan than I am, is he Poundland Bay? Or I wrote down a student of kind of Verhoeven and those other European directors that kind of came into American cinema. Mm. So Jan de Bon, Luke Besson, that kind of vibe. On on paper, I prefer him to Bay. Um, but But once I looked at his filmography today, uh, I don't think he's got anything. I, I want to say The Rock and Armageddon are better, e- even than something like Cliffhanger, which I really like. Uh, I, I'd, I'd probably take Bay just, but but both of them have committed so many sins. It's it's really difficult. <laughs> uh, I've got a I've got a little bit on on Rennie here. I didn't really know too much about him. I remember watching this massive Nightmare on Elm Street documentary. Uh, called Never Sleep Again that I'd recommend. Oh yeah, no, I've seen it. Fan- yeah, no, that is, that is fantastic. And yes, I think it it's is huge. on YouTube. It's like five hours or something. But, yeah. uh, forgive me if I get anything wrong. It was ages ago. He, he, he made, uh, Elm Street 4, Dream Master. And he really brought something to the table in terms of the originality at that stage and, and the twisted humor. He, he, he did really well. Uh, he was really broke at the time. He was sleeping on couches and he was calling his mum who was really worried about him saying, come home to Finland. And uh, he's he's stuck at it in Hollywood, not unlike Spielberg in the sense that he was being a bit cheeky and he was sneaking into meetings and hanging around these restricted areas. And these people who they sort of ask, who's that guy? Because if you see him, he's kind of like, uh, he's got long hair and a beard and uh, he kind of looks out of place in, in some of these uh, studio uh, environments, but he was kind of disheveled and unshowered and, um, but he really showed this commitment and, uh, and desire to be a filmmaker and really hung in there. And that's, that's what got him those early gigs. So yeah, we talked about Alien 3 fell through for him. That would have been really interesting to see what he did with that. The, the wheels came off around there for me and it did seem like he was leaning towards this commercial fare and he didn't really have too much of a voice. A lot of those films we listed. We're, we're kind of behind him at that point, although they're all very commercial in in the first place. He's not really trying to be um, an auteur, I wouldn't say, but there's some stuff here that points to him compromising his values as a filmmaker too, when it comes to the ending, which we should probably discuss later when we talk about uh, the conclusion of, of the film. Uh, but in terms of him versus Bay, Bay's edging it, I think. I, I, here's Here's the litmus test. If I said to you who directed Vertical Limit, you could say, oh, it could be Rennie Harlan. It could be, could be yeah. a number of directors because Vertical mm-hmm. Limit looks a lot like Cliffhanger. There isn't yeah. a great deal of like <laughs> distinct visual cues. Yeah. Who, who directed, uh, Drop Zone? It could have been Rennie. <laughs> could have been Rennie. Could have been Rennie. Um, but I, I do find him a fascinating character and I, I just slightly off piece, but I, I found it interesting that he's kind of left Hollywood. And he's, um, he's very much become a kind of Hollywood director who's gone to China to make Hollywood looking movies with Chinese money, which I think will start to become more of the norm. 
but I reckon, you know, if, if, if Rennie Harlan was coming through today, he probably would have made like Ant-Man and no, everyone would have just been like, yeah. oh yeah, he's made a Marvel film. You know, I think, I think that's his level is that he can direct a movie. He can keep it on budget. Well, minus Cutthroat Island, but I think they, that had other issues. Um, mm-hmm. and I think he's able to do that. And I don't think, you know, we've mentioned it before and it, I don't want it to sound disingenuous, but that is, that is, it's, it's hard to make a film. And if you're making a film on this kind of scale, you've got special effects, you've got water. You know, we did Waterworld and we discussed some of the problems that Kevin Reynolds had. And I put him yeah. in that kind of tier of director, Kevin Reynolds, Rennie Harlan. I think Luke Besson lives there too, or he did mm-hmm. for a bit. So, you know, he's that tier of director. And then there's another tier of name recognition. You know, I don't think a, a film opens with Rennie Harlan as like, from the creative <laughs> mind of Rennie Harlan, I don't think that ever or gets Rennie Harlan's Deep Blue Sea. You don't get yeah. your name above the title if you're Rennie. No. Uh, I do think that as far as this script is concerned and this movie, the best a director can do is make you forget how dodgy some of it is. And Rennie does a really good job. It may be 60% of the movie, which isn't bad. I'm in, I'm quite invested and I'm enjoying it. And I'm a little scared here and there, particularly when I was younger and, and I'm entertained too. But you know, the other 40%, I'm just thinking, what the fuck's going on now? <laughs> um, but, but when Rennie has my attention and he, he has it and then, you know, he loses it at times, but I, I would say 60% overall isn't too bad for a film like this. Yeah. I think the, the movie avoids some of the trappings of a kind of B movie that you would normally be accustomed to, especially a creature feature. Cause ordinarily you can't afford the actual creature. So therefore there's lots of corridors. There's lots yeah. of talking. Uh-huh. The one thing that I would, I would probably say about the movie is it probably a little bit too slow to get onto the roller coaster. I think it's about 40 when I think it's about 35 minutes when old Stalin gets his arm bitten off from that point. I think the movies it's on the, it's on the train tracks, but it takes that time to get there. I think we have an issue there because one of my problems is characters here and it wants to be Jurassic Park, but it forgets to do what Jurassic Park does by telling us who these people are, what they want, all the basic stuff you're supposed to to use in, in the screenwriting literature. Uh, you know, Sid Field would have a, a field day and, uh, you know, Robert McKee and all these guys, you know, but you know, I, I don't know how much time you can, you can dedicate to that at the beginning without your audience, your target audience here getting impatient. And you're probably absolutely right, but they have to decide what they're making. Are they making Jurassic Park or are they making Sharknado? Do do you just want to get to the action and forget everything else? Or do you want to set up characters that people actually care about and understand their motivations? Or do you not, do you not care about that at all? I mean, what kind of movie is this? Yeah. Well, I guess that's my, that was going to be my next question, Matt. We, you know, we talked yeah. about it in, in previous episodes about intent, filmmakers intent. We touched upon it in Young Guns 2, which is the idea that critics and audiences second guess the filmmakers. And I think this movie on release had the same kind of reception from people going, Oh, this is just goofy nonsense. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, this dialogue is atrocious. And it's like, to my mind, and maybe you've, you've, you put a seed of doubt in my head now that you've told me that Rennie's trying to make the shining, but, um, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly. allegedly, but to my mind, I think he, I think he knows what he's doing, which is that he's making a kind of, 
shark movie that is all-knowing and very self-referential and is here to have fun and not necessarily here to have Chief Brody, you know, get over his fear of water and right. and being shot when he was, uh, you know, working in in the police force back in New and York. He's, I, and he's I not making an allegorical story like Kubrick either. This is not about anything other than Alzheimer's and sharks with big brains. And th- that's what it's about. There's nothing else going on here. I did appreciate that, though. I appreciated that conflict. Again, I refer to my thoughts on Alien Resurrection, where I was like, I wish that the big bads in that had good intentions that were actually resulted in you know, the mayhem that ensued, at least mm. in Deep Blue Sea, they they make an effort to kind of have a science and ethics versus like the cost of it. And they, they yeah. I, it's not deep. It's not deep at all. It's about as deep as that, that, uh, that Aquatica <laughs> facility, <laughs> but it's something. I like Susan. Uh, her character is actually really interesting, but they don't explore any of the interesting things. They set her up. Uh, I, I wanted to do this thing about Ronnie Cox. Let's, let's go now. in. Let's let's talk about Mister Eighties Executive Bad Guy Ronnie Cox, who's just randomly, t- <laughs> randomly tears up here, and they don't give yeah. him any well airtime, or they certainly don't give him any chance to speak. It's very yeah. odd. One of his best lines in um, is, is it in Total Recall? He goes, "I'll be back in time for cornflakes." Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. Uh, that's a bizarre <laughs> line, but I always remember him for that. And he's in Robocop too, and. Um, you know, he's terrific, but I don't know why he's in that scene. He sat there. He's like a mannequin and he doesn't say anything. And I assume something was shot and deleted. I, I thought about her character um, and how it could have been improved. And and she she references that her, her dad had dementia and she had to keep explaining to him that her mum had died. And every time she explained it, he relived that pain over and over again so i thought maybe we could see that and then i thought no let's because that wouldn't the tone of that wouldn't work with this movie first of all it would it would waste time as you've said at the beginning we've got to get to the get to aquatica but uh, and we don't want to flash back or anything like that so the way they do it is probably the best it can be what about what about a photo of dad and a, just a contemplative look anything because you we don't even we don't even we're not even able to put a face to the person that she's referring to. One of my ideas was we'd have Ronnie Cox as the dad and she would visit a nursing home and he'd still be alive and, and we'd see him with the dementia, but I, I don't think it'll play. And I think the target audience for this are going to burst out laughing. It's just not going it, to, even something as, as awful as uh, Alzheimer's. It, it's like if you show a kid a drunk driving advert or something, they're going to giggle at it or something. It's not really going to play in a movie like this. It's not going to play after that boat scene when he's like, party in it. <laughs> Definitely not. No, no, no. Uh, spring break. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so they don't really explore that with her, but what I really liked is that she was, she would compromise her values to find this cure because it was personal to her. Mm. Uh, so there's the bit where she, uh, we find out that she's been unethical as far as enlarging the shark's brains, uh, going against the, 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 the code, the code or whatever it is. And then uh, there's also the bit where she releases the shark before Thomas Jane can euthanize it. That's the moment we see it in action. Well, I I wanted one more. You've got one more. When she goes to go and pick up the vials, she's putting herself in danger and others because they go and track her down. Okay. The ending, apparently the the ending was originally 
her and Thomas Jane end up together in a romantic embrace and and kiss, and the two of them are alive at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the way it goes in, uh, and then they they tested it for the audience uh, who sent back their test cards, and uh, one of them said, "Kill the bitch." And wow, that seemed that seemed familiar to me. Have we talked about that before? Like someone wanting a character to die on a podcast? Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. I just can't remember which one it yeah, is. Yeah, I couldn't place it. Uh, but anyway, if we remember, we'll get back to it. But uh, what? And, and then they brought LL in as the <laughs> the hero at the end and replaced her because they they didn't like that she was basically the villain of the piece and she got to live at the end and and go off into the sunset with Thomas Jane. So she ended up sacrificing herself um, and uh, Thomas Jane and LL end up <laughs> together at the end, I imagine. But uh, having had no real connection throughout the film <laughs> whatsoever. What I would have preferred there, I think, is just for LL to have died earlier and for uh, her to have had the opportunity to, to decide whether um, the shark gets free or uh, Thomas Jane dies and she kind of ends up making some kind of a decision that Thomas Jane would be killed, sacrificing the person that is her potential romantic love interest uh, in order for the shark to actually escape. And the shark would actually, she couldn't physically do it because she needs to get that shark back anyway, anyhow, to get the uh, the samples back. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at, at that point so thomas jane ends up dying and and uh the sequel would be open for for her to return or whoever to return and try and claim the sharks back on her behalf uh so i just wanted them to push it a bit further with her uh ethical you know unethical decisions you know make her the real villain of the piece she has been described as a black hole of charisma and i don't think that's true at all i actually think she she looks incredible and I think uh, she she doesn't have an awful lot to do. I think the the test audiences didn't like that she was responsible for other people's deaths uh, because of her her behavior and and seemingly selfish behavior. But it's not really because she's looking at uh, the 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 many, not the few. She's very she's happy for you know so and so to die. Uh, Michael Rappaport, you know, I'm very happy for him to die in order for uh, this cure to to come to fruition. But uh, so I, I don't think they like that. But also, I I don't think it was cast exactly right. Uh, I think there are there are other options there. Yeah, I think this is where me and you will will find some common ground because I don't think she's very good in this. Um, and I, I I'm not going to put it and lay it on on Saffron Burrows solely. I think um, you know, Remy Harlan is part part of the casting process. I, I would look at the casting. Uh, director and I'd also look at Rennie. I think they've chosen their, their female protagonist incorrectly. And I'm going to cite that scene where she does recount about her father because it, to me, it lands falsely. It feels like an actress reading her lines. Is it a bit cold? Yes, I think it is. And I think she's cold throughout. Tell me, Mr. Franklin, have you ever known anyone with Alzheimer's? Well, no. By the end, all my father could do was ask why my mother wasn't at home. And each time I told him she was dead, I had to watch him take that loss like a car wreck. 200,000 men and women develop Alzheimer's each year. 
What if you could end all that suffering with a single pill? Give me till Monday morning, 48 hours. I'll give you results that'll skyrocket your stock price, or I'll help you pack the lab myself. It's your call. So, and I had an alternate casting choice, which okay, I think, okay. I think, had life not gotten in the way, I think Rennie would just would have cast his wife again, or his now his then divorced wife. So, Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan were married, um, hence the long kiss goodnight and uh, God bless them, cutthroat island. They divorced in 98 and Saffron Burrows, you're right. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's looks a little bit like Gina Davis to my mind. And mm. I think Gina Davis would have at least brought a little bit of likability and a bit of a softness of touch because I think that's what the character needed. That one introspective speech when she's speaking to Samuel L. Jackson and God bless him, Ronnie Cox is sat there mute <laughs> to, to, to my mind. That is the that is the one bit where you're going to be able to carry the audience's sympathies from that moment. Yeah. Because she is going yeah. to do things that you are going to question. There's nothing wrong with having an unlikable lead who makes decisions mm. that you don't agree with, but you've got to be on their side. It wasn't established. It, 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 if it had been established clearer, uh, uh, you know, maybe they would have sided with her more. But I, I think you're right. The casting isn't quite right. Uh, weirdly, Saffron, you're talking about directors and actresses. Saffron Burroughs was, uh, Mike Figgis's muse, mm. uh, which I, I didn't know too much about. Uh, I haven't seen One Night Stand or The Loss of Sexual Innocence, Miss Julie or Time Code that she did with him, but I do have, uh, Hotel from 2001. Do you remember Hotel? It was a really unusual Mike Figgis movie. I won't lie. Unfortunately, my Saffron Burroughs knowledge stops at, <laughs> yeah. stop, stops at being the wife of, uh, Eric Banner in Troy. That's it. In Troy. That's all, exactly. that's all I honestly, and I know that she's been on television. I think she's in the Agent Shields, uh, TV show, but, um, Gangster Number One. Do you remember Gangster Number One? Yeah. I, I'd say I do. I do know that. Yes. I don't I, remember I, her in it, but she was in no, it. She was in it. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I, yeah, she's, she's, gorgeous and there's nothing you know i don't i'm not getting the meg ryan is a fighter pilot stuff going on i don't think it's a stretch for me to think that she's a super doctor i think it's a stretch for me to to sympathize with her in a conflict science versus you know human loss because i don't think she's able to carry that weight in what is a goofy short movie but you need somebody who can do that shorthand and she cannot well i've got a top three here so uh, you can help me pick. I'll be interested if we've got the same picks. Go on then. Well, my number three would be Ashley Judd at the time. I think. She oh, I had I, I had her as number five, but we're so we're oh, okay. we're saying we're saying as well that we are dispensing a budget <laughs> because clearly yeah. Ashley Judd might be more expensive than Saffron Burris. Yeah, if I was budgeting, if I was just laying laying it out uh, for, I could imagine Ashley Judd as well because Ashley Judd is 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 the woman scorned, and who would have, who wouldn't want to see the woman scorned by the shark? I mean, absolutely. Her scowling would be on point. She's very beautiful. Uh, like the scene where she strips out of her uh, wetsuit, you know. Not, she'd knock it out of the park. Okay. Uh, and then this is kind of a joint two, two and one because the, my number two, I don't think we could get a, uh, Angelina Jolie. Yeah. I had, I actually put in brackets perfect. <laughs> like Angelina Jolie, cause I actually, I think for the legacy of the movie, it, it needed an estab, either an established star then or a star that would then go on to greater things. And I'll save my sandwiches for the Carter role 
because I've got some interest in what casting choices. Clearly, this is, you know, from our perch in 2021. Us Captain Hindsides over here pretending we know what we're doing. But, but yeah, Angelina Jolie, you know, if you had a blank check, she's who I would have got. But 1999, that's uh, Girl Interrupted era, which is when she wins the Oscar. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and and she, she she goes on and does Gone in 60 Seconds, so she could easily have done a Deep Blue Sea. And also Tomb Raider. I know that's more of an iconic character, but she she does like that heightened thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that had more to do with being Lara Croft than, than Alzheimer's shark. So my yeah. number one, uh, who I think would... would nail it on every level is uh charlie's theron oh well so you interesting you've gone with charlie's i thought it was a bit too soon for charlie's i went with gwyneth paltrow but it's mainly because i was thinking about keeping the ending as is and the audience would absolutely be salivating for her death if it was made now so i'm <laughs> so i'm i've got i for think gwyneth. charlie's could do the action better um but yeah i i can i can see it but yeah, my, my number one is Charlie's. Well, let's move on to the second lead because I titled my notes because I'm cruel this way. We need a bigger star. Yeah. Thomas Jane, thoughts? Because we've discussed him. You weren't a uh, part of the gang at this point. We were still in our, you know. Oh, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights, yeah. We're still in our little yeah. small scale, me and Devlin shooting the shit uh, stage. Yeah. To my mind, Thomas Jane has had a bad agent in the 90s that told him actually you shouldn't be a character actor you need to be an action lead because to my mind mm. every time i see him in an action role which now it's just straight to streaming services kind of straight to dvd in tesco ironically in 2021 films mm. i saw him in one with alongside bruce willis and they both look fucking bored on the poster but he just doesn't right. look very interested whereas as soon as you give him something where he's got a bit of meat uh, a character piece or something quirky he comes to life because in this film i'm sorry matt but again thomas shane just if if he's trying to do the han solo thing it just is not working at all no uh, and uh, no, and no. again I, I, there's no chemistry between him and saffron burrows and i just again i wonder if the film itself in order to have a, a greater kind of legacy and reputation needed an up and comer that would then go on to be a global superstar that you could go back and go, do you remember when he did that goofy shark movie? I, I couldn't work out like why he doesn't cut the mustard because on paper he seems to tick the boxes. Uh, but then I saw some of the behind the scenes and interviews and he's not a cool dude. He, he looks kind of scared in some of the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, granted he is swimming with sharks. I think I'd be pretty scared as well. But he's a bit of a doofus on the red carpet. He's, he's trying very hard to be impressive. He's, he doesn't seem to be a cool guy at ease. He's not Steve McQueen, you know, and that's what you need there. Uh, it reminded me of Michael Bean in a way. Like I much prefer Michael Bean, but Michael Bean was someone else who couldn't quite make that action hero lead jump. And I wonder if there's something there, a, a misplaced confidence or he, he doesn't quite have what he knows he needs and he's overcompensating. Uh, some of the angles of him too, he looks kind of bizarre. He, he does, he's not a traditional, not a traditionally handsome male lead either. He seems like he is, but some of these angles, he kind of looks a little peculiar. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he, listen, he's got himself in phenomenal shape. Um, mm. one, yeah. um, he's got the tan, he's got the blonde hair. 
and he's got a couple of opportunities to to kind of deliver a bit of a zinger, but it just all seems to fall very flat. And I just, to my mind, I I was just like gagging for somebody who would have taken on this what is on paper a relatively paper thin role and just yeah. done what a star does, which is compensate for the lack of characterization. And he just doesn't do mm. it. You know, here's, do you want to hear my, uh, my old, old oh, casting? Yeah. yeah. So number one, cause he would have been cheap at the time and he, and he would have been in phenomenal shape. Hugh Jackman. Okay. Yep. I yeah, think you get, you get, it. you get Hugh Jackman and then everyone goes, remember when Hugh Jackman did that sharp movie? Uh, <laughs> I've gone for Matthew McConaughey because again, the re- the yeah. Renaissance people would have been like, yeah, forget about him beating his chest. Do you remember when he was beating sharks? So mm-hmm. I've gone for McConaughey. It. I think this is perfect fertile ground for Jean-Claude Van Damme. Bring back an eighties yeah. dying star. Give them a shark movie. I think Arnie would look ridiculous with <laughs> doing the shark wrangling. And yeah, he's too, yeah. he's too old at this point. Sly, I think has already done cliffhanger. Van Damme. Instead, Van Damme in 99 was doing Universal Soldier 2. He should have done Deep Blue Sea. That's fascinating. Uh, mine are, are bizarre. Like, first of all, I've written Brad Pitt, but you'd never get Brad Pitt. <laughs> You're and, never going to get Brad Pitt. I don't even know if I would want him because it's, it's too trashy for Brad. I just keep Brad away from this. He's doing yep. Fight Club in 99. He's not interested in this. Uh, and then my other two are absolutely bizarre. David Boreanaz from Angel. I thought he could have played it. My other one was someone who I think he looks a little bit like is, uh, Aaron Eckhart. Well, you get the, you get the look then and, but you also get a bit more talent, I think. Yes. He's a better actor and he's also got that slightly untrustworthy Willie Yeah, a bit more charisma. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that was the other thing that annoyed me about that character is that he has played so good that I refuse to believe that he even smuggled like a bit of fruit. Like to my yeah. mind, he should have had a little bit more. There Edge. should have been a seed, a seed of doubt that he might, because he's the one person who's competent enough to, to kind of dance around with these sharks. Maybe he mm-hmm. might leave them, but mm-hmm. there's no question he's ever going to, he's like literally like a dog, you know, Carter go over there, Carter go over here. It's not yeah. in doubt. So uh, that's to my mind, that would have made it a little bit more interesting. It would have created a little bit more conflict within the group. I think, I think Matthew McConaughey out of these choices, I think he would be, he'd be good. Let's talk about the, the main, the main characters in this, which is the shark. So you've already mentioned it, that you were happy to meet the premise at face value. And that's where I think Rennie's strengths are, which is, I think he is simultaneously presenting us with a goofy shark movie, but a really good action packed, fun set pieces. He knows that, you know, Jaws and he knows that you know horror movies so I think he's playing with those with mm. with those expectations and one of them we we already discussed it but Samuel L Jackson's death scene comes mm. out of literally nowhere but it's it's played as a gag and I think the gag is is it his death where the the leg twitches or is it Rappaport's <laughs> I think that that's Rappaport yeah <laughs> right. I think it's Rappaport he turns into an action man as well when he gets bitten <laughs> he I don't know what's going on there uh, I was going to ask you about the the intelligence of the sharks it's something Ebert had a problem with we can get to in Critics Corner later but there's this idea that they are orchestrating things and they're they're actively trying to sink the facility that's what their end game was the whole time because he raised those bloody fences 
watch those <laughs> cheeky bugger. There's a bit in part two, or not even part two, it's just a, a lame sequel. But uh there's a scene where a shark swims up to a porthole and looks through the porthole and <laughs> eavesdrops on a conversation and appears to understand what is going on. Oh, so brilliant. they took it to a ludicrous degree in in that one. I only got through half of, of Deep Blue Sea 2. It's absolute shite. I like low-budget slock, but it needs to be pre-digital yeah. era for me. I, I like practical effects. I can't stand shit digital low budget crap it's nah, not for me so uh, one line that leapt out was uh, how did they cut the power man they're animals that that that's where you had a problem in alien resurrection there with we were seeing too much i, I think we were actually seeing them do it in, instead of in as opposed to aliens where the lights go out and they say they cut the power it's not like they're grem they're gremlins uh intentionally messing with uh, traffic lights and things like that so in this one you do see probably too much but uh it goes with the conceit of the film like the bit where he turns the oven on does the shark intentionally turn an oven on felt accidental because i think rennie is he's desperately trying to ape spielberg in these set pieces so spielberg tends to give you bombastic action but the set pieces are driven by coincidence i'm thinking Mm. about all the indiana jones films where it feels like indiana's reacting to stuff and it's not preordained it doesn't feel forced yeah it's not like a dance it doesn't feel like it's overly choreographed he's being inventive and reactive to the situation and i think rennie has attempted to do something similar but that oven one is a bit of a stretch the idea of a chef being cooked by a fish in his own oven is actually kind of funny yeah Uh, and i think i think ll calls it out like the irony is not lost (laughs) on me lord And I don't know how he manages to axe his way out of there in, in like less than two minutes, but he, he manages to axe his way, like cut through the, through the top. It's kind of bizarre, the escape, but, um, again, pinch of salt. And the main conceit is that the sharks are smart and, uh, they're, they're figuring things out. But I, I do think maybe you see, you certainly see too much in, in terms of the sharks. I mean, in, in Jaws, I think there was four minutes of screen time here, uh, in in a much shorter move not a much shorter movie 15 minutes shorter uh maybe a bit a bit more um you you see five minutes of sharks on screen but it's it's really i don't know if they're counting the fin they must be counting the fin in in terms of four minutes in jaws because there's hardly any shark yeah there's there's just a lot of shots of sharks and there's a few scaling issues listen the the digital effects 99 i'm not going to I'm not going to sort of get my knickers in a twist over it. Um, I no. much prefer all the animatronic uh, shark footage. And I think it looks great. Oh, yeah. I think it's got the, it looks tactile. It looks slimy. It looks wet. I'll, I'll be the, I'll be granddad here and uh, have a go at the effects. Cause I, I'm like a broken record with this stuff. You know, practical is good. CGI is bad as a general rule. But this one, it just, it really looks unfinished. It looks like temporary uh particularly if you look at the samuel l jackson death which is arguably the key scene yeah that looks like it's pre-vis doesn't it there's a moment early on that i seem to remember i can't quite place it but i think they do something with shadows it's a suggestion of the sharks using shadows and the rippling of the water and i think they could have if you're going to steal from jaws if you're going to steal from that shark movie steal the technique of not showing everything there's also a bit where um 
preacher is banging on the the door they think that the sharks are attacking them again when they're enclosed in in that kind of uh i think it's the ladder set piece or just after and they think that the sharks are banging on the door trying to get in it turns out it's preacher and more of that kind of stuff unseen sharks using sound would have been uh more preferable like to me i mean in that era they're doing things for the first time because they think it looks good in the era of you know early playstation video games and stuff they i imagine they thought it looked great but it just has it's aged dreadfully well, I think you'll look, you'll, we, we touched upon the target audience and I think the target audience want to see things that they've never seen before. And one of them mm. is watching sharks swim backwards and, you know, yeah. Rennie picks other moments that I've now seen in, in, for example, I saw an alien covenant, which is when the sharks take out the cameras. It's kind of, it's a, it's a simple one. We've seen it before, but it's effective. It's like, Oh, or did he do that on purpose or, and you know, we see it's done on purpose, but they're still yeah. questioning whether or not these sharks are or, uh, you know, they've intent within their actions. Uh, you must have enjoyed the, the, the shot, the, the shark model, uh, kind of gag. It's a nice little jump scare. Thinks I did like that. But because the cool thing about that is it happens at almost the same time in the movie as the, sh- the, the fake fin in Spielberg's jaws when the kids use the fake rubber fin. So ah. I, I, I listed a couple of things here from jaws, jaws parallels. I've called it. Uh, the th- yeah, like we said, the three sharks are killed in the same ways, blown up, electrocuted, and incinerated. Yeah. That's the third one. Yeah. Um, did you feel like the Sam Jackson speech about, um, where was he? It, it was like ice. It sounds like he was one of the survivors from the true life tragic, uh, plane <laughs> crash in a live. I mean, in a live, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one where they ate each other. I know, but I also like the fact that even though there's killer sharks, Samuel L. Jackson's like, I'll top jump your killer sharks. Have you ever seen ice? It's like, well, right. yeah, whatever, Sam. Like these sharks think, I don't think ice does, but anyway. That reminded me of the Indianapolis speech from Quint as well, just before one of the major attacks. It's the same thing. There's a scene where Stellan Skarsgård, after his horrific ordeal, uh, there's a jump scare from his dead body, uh, which just appears. Uh, mm. and it's just a, a quick little jump scare. And that's very similar to the Ben Gardner head coming out of the hull of, of the boat. That happens around the same time too. So I think someone is, uh, I mean, the final explosion, the chunks of shark falling is blatantly the smart, smiley son of a bitch. So Rennie replaces yellow barrels with uh, a winch. He does. Yeah. But we just talk about Stellan Skarsgård's death. Stellan Skarsgård's death is amazing. Uh, that is that to me is when you're almost rooting for the sharks. So when yeah. Skarsgård's arm gets bitten <laughs> off, and uh, so yeah. one of one of when um, one of our listeners when they found out we were doing Deep Blue Sea was, can you please mention how frustrating it is to see Stellan not tuck his arm uh, behind his back <laughs> when he's got the, when he's got the prosthetic on? So I will mention that because there is a shot which clearly yeah. shows that he's he's got like that fat body. That you see in Total Recall when Quado's coming out, it's like, oh, he's a little bit wider than he probably oh, should be. Oh, well, that, I didn't notice that. I, I thought maybe he was wearing a blue sleeve, like a, like a blue screen sleeve that was then removed, but he's got his arm tucked. No, he's got it tucked and you can't, you can't tucked see like, it. But anyway. uh, Carl, uh, Carl Weathers in, in, uh, in yeah, Predator. in Predator or, or Lance Henriksen sticking his whole body out when he saves Newt. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's happened. It's happened. But, um, it happens, yeah. but what I love about that initial bite is not only does the arm stay in, 
but kudos yeah. to the production designer who was like probably said can we put it on white tiles because that blood like pops mm-hmm. on screen it looks great and there's a yeah. you know there's a there's an image there's a top down image and it pulls out of Stalin lying down and I mean all the I blood in the it. world all the blood in the world is coming out of his body but that I just love how it's 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 like a it's a running gag isn't it like so then and it, <laughs> it's it's so, it's subtly done like he can't breathe because it's raining so they put yeah. on the breathing apparatus then they connect mm-hmm. him to the winch I love again failures in life the winch then. <laughs> Has a, has yeah. just that time some, some jackass didn't check it when the helicopter went, went out mm-hmm. and it fails. He falls into the water. That moment <laughs> is, is done in slow motion. And, and then you, to my mind, when he, when the shark's got him, uh, in his mouth and he's swimming towards the window, to me, that's it smiling. It's a grin. It's a bit where it kind of goes again, uh, it swipes against the screen. And to me, that's like, it winks. It's like, got him team it would have been more effective if we hated him more uh he's not uh, he's not hateable enough you know he's pissing in the wind he's kind of a slightly comedic in that moment and then he's just sloshed for most of it there's a deleted <laughs> yes. scene where there's a, a happy birthday thing for susan and he's he's pissed through that as well um it's never really he's not the big bad and and samuel L. jackson's funding it he's not the big bad and then you've got susan who has good intentions but she's doing some suspect things in order to achieve them. Uh, I, I like the scene you're talking about with biting the arm, but I do think they overuse slow motion. Uh, ah, yeah. yeah. Throughout the whole thing, but I think that could have been done slightly better. But yeah, it, it, it plays well still. And and it's ludicrous the, the way it throws him against that screen. Oh, it's so funny. Nobody has studied the way sharks move. Nobody, these guys behind their computers know nothing about physics. None of it looks real. None of it looks like that could actually occur. Be careful, Matt. You're stepping on Roger's toes here. (laughs) The, the, The conceit of the smart sharks, I, I will surrender to, but the way it's swimming with him and then manages to propel him forward but there's, there's no movement from the head it just the, the whole thing but but then and the way the glass breaks that effect is dreadful when samuel jackson and he kind of corrals them all and they run away and the way that glass breaks and the the water rushes in just i, I don't buy that either there, there's there's some there's some fun ideas but the execution of them it, it it's it's a bit lacking i think Shut down. The whole system is shut down. Brenda, are you there? This thing is dead. Somebody, please, tell me what that is. Please. Well, I suppose you could argue the same for God bless him, Michael Rappaport. I mean, there are certain things that I can go with, but him being well, from ca- going to Caltech, just <laughs> yeah. no, no. Well, that scene is ludicrous because LL is explaining the theory of relativity to a, a, a graduate of Caltech, and he goes, "That's the best way that's ever been explained." <laughs> it's like, well, your teachers can't be up to much then. I, I think I would rather have had a bit of Alfred Molina species energy in that role. 
uh, I, I, can't, I know he's a bit older, but maybe Molina could have been Skarsgård, but he would have been too, too humorous, I think. The other reason for that character is to tell them exactly where everything is. He says these walls and buckle and crack like toothpicks. And then he knows where the lift is. He knows where the exits are. Um, from an expositional perspective, as much as he's kind of detestable as a character and we're waiting for him to die, really. Uh, he needs to be there. He knows where the bilge pump is and he knows where the generators are. And, uh, yeah. So he, he, he helps get us through the story. Yeah. I suppose if you're going to have a character that is literally there just to set the context of the building, then you may as well give it to the, to like a New York accent, thick, heavy rapper than someone, some egghead, I guess. They do that quite well. I think that I, you know, maybe we've been harsh with Rennie, but Rennie establishes the the structure of where we're going to be. You've called it spam in a can. I know you enjoy that kind oh, of Oh, I love them. Uh, setup. And he does that very well with Aquatica. And uh, I, I originally thought it was really smart because you don't have to build too much on the ocean. But they actually built quite a lot. It was like a mini Waterworld, uh, one set from Waterworld, you know. Uh, and then everything else is submerged. So they also do it when Sam Jackson shows up and Jacqueline McKenzie is treating him like a tourist and showing him around. And she explains where everything is and how everything functions. And in action films set in one location, you know, Die Hard is the classic. You need to know the geography to appreciate what the characters are doing and what they're going through. So I, I think Rennie, Rennie did an all right job there. Yeah, and there's a there's a lovely camera move which goes from a, a physical shot into a digital where it just it feels like you're going underwater as Samuel L. Jackson's entering uh, yeah. the Aquatica, and I think it, again there's a there's a nice bit of you know we haven't really talked about the music, but in a shark film, well you can't win because if you do something big, you can't win. If you do something that's minimalist, how are you going to do less than? You're not going to do less than that. So you can't win. No, I, so I think Trevor Rabin just went, I'm going to cover all my bases. So he, he kind of writes a, it's almost like a Halloween, like Michael Myers theme tune for the sharks. It is similar. I, I actually noted down uh, Nightmare on Elm Street too, because it has that kind of dream, that uh, dreamy quality to it. Yeah, it's better that you're right. It is actually more Nightmare on, on Elm Street than it is uh, it's a bit Halloween. Above, but like you said, it may, may, perhaps it is referencing these slashes. Uh, perhaps it is Rennie, uh, you know, referencing those films. Mm-hmm. And uh, the composer, Matt, just for your just for your knowledge, Armageddon. <laughs> so there you go. Also did Armageddon. Absolutely, and <laughs> and he did. I think Gone in sixty seconds. He did too. Yeah, uh, he was he was which, the go to uh, Bruckheimer guy for action scores, and there there is some generic action score in Deep Blue Sea, but the 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 shark theme when they're really building the suspense and the kind of the dread. Because once they're out, it then kind of goes a bit Looney Tunes. And they, the threat of them, not that, not, not, not threats, but the, the fear turns into just gleeful murder. So I'm less yes, scared. Yeah. I'm less scared by them and more like, Oh, there they are. I, I, I guess in, <laughs> in essence, all I wanted yeah. was one main shark. Again, maybe one of them needed to be striped from Gremlins. So you knew, but mm-hmm. they don't, they don't do that, which is surprising because there's three of them. You normally like make a scar or have one get, you know, I was thinking like in Tremors, you know, in Tremors, the one that pulls the truck at, um, halfway through the movie is the one that at the end, so they're like, there he is, the bastard who pulled our truck. They know it's him. Right. You can differentiate between. Yeah, you can differentiate. Yeah. So I think they could have probably done that. So we had one big bad. Agreed. 
Uh, how about uh, the other half of the music? How about a bit of LL? Deepest Bluest. Well, I think I think you know from my intro that I'm, <laughs> and I think I called him a lyrical genius. Uh, you know what? I, again, these are what's so surprising about when we do these kind of slightly more goofier uh, reviews of films from the past. I had no idea that LL Cool J was so acclaimed. So he's like, he's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> like, I, I can only name three songs one from him which is phenomenon and then the two he did with jennifer lopez i literally uh, and then i thought yeah. and then all i all i remember them from ll cool j is he just he ice t must have rung him and said ll forget about big movies the key is to get with dick wolf just get yourself a, a procedural cop yeah. drama and the residuals are phenomenal and that, so i just remember right. him going into ncis and that is it i didn't realize he had such a stellar career in music that he's now like one of the most prominent hip hop rappers of our era. It's unbelievable. Well, it's interesting that um, Cube was off doing Anaconda like two two years before, and he's doing this one. Uh, there's there's a lot of parallels there, but I'd actually really like to watch Anaconda again. I've, I've, I've it, it's it's had a bit of a resurgence just through this chat, but um, there's some amazing quotes from from that rap. I think you've nailed a couple of good ones. The one I wrote down was. I ate your ancestors. The ocean is haunted. Your life vest is off. And that turns me on. <laughs> that was my favorite one. But no, I, I thought he was, I thought he was good in this. I think, um, listen, he's acting against a bloody bird for the majority of the film. And I think he does a decent, he does a decent enough job of being somewhat comet relief. I mean, it is a little bit of a reductive role, like the, the, the black chef who's also. <laughs> talking about religion um but i think he's given it a little you know when they do their little prayer before they ascend to the surface not to say that not to say that i was like emotionally invested oh don't tell me you were moved no but i was just like you know what (laughs) i thought ll you know what i will give you credit for going going for this like he's going for it and when he's when he's in when he's in the shark's mouth and he's stabbing it and he gets it in the eye I don't know. I know that you wanted him dead, but I, I was quite happy for him to pop back up. I thought he was going to get the Jake treatment from uh, Jaws the Revenge, the, the Mario Van Peebles death. <laughs> well, he kind of does, but you know. He, he kind of does, but lives, which is not unlike the other cut of Jaws the Revenge where Mario Van Peebles lives. Or, or Hooper in the first one. You know, you thought yeah. he was dead and then he pops back up. You uh, mentioned Bird, and uh, I think there's a really <laughs> unhealthy relationship going on there is it, there's a bit where he says you got a nasty looking tongue which is like something you'd expect to hear in a, in a dirty movie and and he and then he feeds it some cake and I, it just seemed very untoward i'm not you're not suggesting there's anything you know you know physical going on between them but there, there's something bizarre between him and that bird and i, I didn't really like the the invoking of of jesus and, and praying and all this stuff and the, the, he uses the cross to stab the shark that's about as, as much use as you'll get out of that cross I think. dex x machina cross i mean that it is so big that it was like well that is <laughs> that is coming back that is yeah. absolutely coming back every time they cut back to him on on this recent watch it never bothered me before i, I can't remember ever having an issue with it um, but every time we cut back to him, I just thought we could be doing something else with character here. We could really be doing, we could be seeing, an, you know, the plight of Susan, or we could be demonizing, um, Stellan a bit more before he got killed, you know, using that, that part of the running time to just do something a bit more useful than having him praying in an empty, uh, oven. in an empty <laughs> corridor. Yeah. Or <laughs> that bit with the oven. 
I, I just, I got annoyed with how, how often it cut back to him actually. And after a while, I was like, oh, just, you know, I, I much prefer Susan to him. I think she should have lived. And I've been, I've been singing Rennie's praise, but I believe it was Rennie who made that decision to beef up his role. I think, um, that's what I read. It- well, I heard that based on the test cards because they wanted her out. So they brought him to the fore at the end for him and Thomas Jane to, which is, would explain why he's on his own for, large swathes of the film yeah. and then and then they ditch him again which doesn't make sense it's like so he does his omelette routine so i just think that that's <laughs> yeah. you know that studio filmmaking oh he's he's tested well beef up that character rewrite it do you think because of the rewrite then they they inserted some ll scenes of him on his own oh yeah the the egg one it's gotta be yeah like why would you then have them all split up again so they they he he comes back saves them and then they break up again. Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it? You would have them then as a team get picked off. But instead, Susan goes off to get the vials. I think Carter then goes with Rappaport and Preacher's left on his own. It doesn't make any sense, does it? When he's delivering his recipes to the camera, it does give it levity. And I suppose that humour does endear him to us. But it also, like for me, prevented me from taking him or, or anything else that's going on there too seriously. And the wink, the winking of the ending was a problem for me. There's a bit where it looks like he's dead and he opens one eye <laughs> to kind of see what's going on. And this is a crucial um, action moment um, that, that's going on. And I think Rennie wants us to laugh there. And I, I'm not too sure he's, he's orchestrated the, the suspense and the action and the humor, he's just thrown it all at the wall at that point. Well, Matt, this leads me to really the big existential question, which is where in the subgenre of short movies and let's add creature features, where mm. does, where does Deep Blue Sea sit for you? I don't debate the Beatles and I don't debate Jaws. They're just the greatest in that. And, you know, I, if somebody told me that they weren't, I just, okay, thank you. Well, I, I don't need to continue this conversation. <laughs> but the, 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 as far as you said, the second best shark movie, which is a really great question. I it really had me thinking. Uh, so I, I've just brought in a, a couple of honorable mentions because I haven't seen all of these things. I haven't seen Sharknado. I haven't seen. Have you not? Um, no, I haven't. Um, oh, okay. But I, I have, uh, do you want to start with that one? What, what well, kind of- oh no, I was going to say I can give you like a pithy review of, uh, what about, yeah, yeah. uh, what about the Meg? Because I feel like the Meg I, no. wishes it was Deep Blue Sea. Uh, from, from the poster, I can assume it, but I've never seen it. Well, actually, funnily enough, the Meg wins on posters because the Deep Blue Sea poster is fucking dreadful. I mean, that's, that is yeah. one, one poster that you're like, well, that's not going to live long in the memory. Uh, photoshopped, photoshopped saffron burrows and just a shark mouth kind of not even seemingly attacking here. Anyway, that's that's by the by. The marketing team dropped the ball. But the um yeah, the Meg is trying to go for like humor, human drama and also trying to, to kind of tackle this absurd premise of a megalodon. Jason Statham? Jason Statham would have been good in Deep Blue Sea as Thomas James. Yeah. So there's another there's another casting yeah. choice because the Meg never feels like a cohesive film. So you know right. how we're talking about Deep Blue Sea, maybe what's the intent? Is the tone necessarily coherent throughout? Um, you know, we mm-hmm. don't really have any characters that we can latch onto emotionally. The Meg tries to do that, but okay. it's also trying to bring a cast of 
Chinese actors with American style filmmaking and it just never feels like a cohesive piece. And, and the Meg also kind of pulls its punches. Whereas the one thing you can say about Deep Blue Sea is this mm. film is, is going for a hard R. It's going for, you know, this is oh, yeah. teenage, teenagers want to see it. There's going to be some inventive kills. The Meg holds back. The, the, you know, it's holding back the tears, I simply would say. <laughs> okay. Well, Sharknado was an, another one that would, would play on, on Sky late night Bravo or whatever. Uh, and I, I don't think I've ever caught it. Certainly not in full, but it just looked cheap to me. The, the effects are cheap and, but it's sold on, on that basis, right? Sharknado has got more in common with snakes on a plane than it has deep blue okay. sea. It's intentionally okay. making something so absurd, so outlandish. That, that that's supposed to be entertaining. No one is going in taking that seriously. No, no one. I'm going in with deep, to Deep Blue Sea with the same attitude, but I guess it's the digital effects. It's the really low budget filmmaking. Mm. It's the really low wattage kind of stars that are in there. And it just feels like it's a waste of my time. The thing is, if you want to make something that's just fun roller coaster ride stuff, you still need some craft. And I guess my problem with Sharknado is that I don't feel like there's any skill behind what they're doing. Like sharks flying in the air, grabbing people. That's the kind of shit that I, I'd come up with when I was 12. Do you know what I mean? There needs to be a little bit more inventiveness with, with what you're doing. People would say to me, you know, you might like that because you like Jaws. And it's like, well, I totally resent that. You know, it's like, I, I'm not going to like any old movie with a shark in because I like Jaws. I, I've already ranted about why Jaws is good. Um, and what, why it's the greatest, but my, my two honorable mentions would be quite modern ones. Uh, open water, uh, which I remember enjoying. Blair Witch with sharks. Exactly. That's how it was sold. Blair Witch with sharks and, uh, like DV camcorder footage and you, you don't know what's going on beneath, uh, beneath the water. And, and that, that works and that really plays. I have, I've never revisited it. I've only seen it once. So I'm just going to chuck that in, that in there. Yep. Yep. And, one that I watched, the, the most recent one that actually got all the way through was The Shallows with uh, yeah. Blake Lively. Yeah. Uh, and that one, it, it hooked me enough to, to I, I stuck with it. It was just on TV. I caught it and I watched it until the very end. And she helped a lot, actually. Um, she, she held the screen very well. Gravity with sharks. You, you probably won't agree, but I, I, I put Jaws 2 ahead of Deep Blue Sea. Uh, so really? My, oh, I yeah, don't agree. I, okay. The chief, the chief in his short shorts, uh, <laughs> chomping on a power line. Yeah. It, that, that whole thing with the kids going out, um, uh, again, against his wishes and, uh, they're all going out and having fun on the boats and more, uh, more peril then for you, them. I guess more palm sweating. I actually think it has more to do with the continuation of of the chief and just seeing the, sh- the, the, the chief. Um, I, I know it's, it's not a, a patch on the first, but when, when I was a kid, I've said this before, uh, I used to, I, I saw this, the, the Jaws series very young and I used to judge the quality of the film on the death of the shark. Mm. So, uh, like I always liked Jaws too, because of the, the way the power line, uh, it, it gnaws on the power line. Uh, and you know, it's, Roy Scheider is great. And I mm. love the character and Jaws is my absolute favorite. So that just tips it for me. It's, it's a, conti- it's an inferior continuation, but it's a continuation nonetheless. Matt, favorite scenes before we get to summary. So what, what else outside of Stellan's 
demise. I mean, again, can I just point out that I am absolutely in awe of watching Stellan Skarsgård stuck up against a pane of glass and Jacqueline McKenzie <laughs> is genuinely terrified, like, no! And just like, well, she also, is- he, he's the father of her unborn child, according to uh, the deleted scene. The deleted scene. I think Rennie, uh, they were right to just get rid of that as a as doesn't as a belong kind of, in this film definitely don't need a pregnant woman's death on our conscience as an audience member like no so it was the right right instinct turning on the oven I, i've written here are we expected to believe a shark intentionally turns the oven on i just found <laughs> the irony of that moment that, you know the joke wasn't lost on me that a fish is cooking the chef that's maybe i'm stupid but i think that's funny um I would mention the Rappaport and Thomas Jane scene where they're stuck underwater. I don't think the scene is particularly good, but I'm terrified of drowning and enclosed spaces underwater and getting trapped somewhere. Uh, like when I was a kid, we used to do all kinds of stuff. We used to go, you know, swim underwater and get, retrieve the bricks from the bottom and, uh, during the swimming classes. And I remember crawling through this pipe when I was a kid, like, and, and, if you got stuck in there, you'd, it'd be a disaster, but you do it. Uh, so these days I'm particularly, um, you know, when I, when I reminisce about those things and how reckless we were and you, and you think about like the claustrophobic things that usually when you see it in a film like this and you add water to it and forget about it, I'm, I'm, uh, so it, it more in concept than execution, but that, that scene was, uh, affecting, I think. Uh, and then the, the one that always, sticks with me is Samuel L. Jackson's death, but I, I I don't think it's a favorite scene now because the, the CG has bothered me to such a degree that I don't really want to watch that again. So I'm going to go with anything with Sam Jackson smoking a cigar or when LL uh, hides in an oven, that would be, uh, and, and the oven gets switched on maybe. How about you? Yeah. Uh, I do think even though Rennie is aping himself with the cliffhanger, I think the Jacqueline McKenzie, death is effective you know coming out of the water and just a sheer amount of blood and red you know that's what i mean the film doesn't hold back um i i do think despite even the change in the ending that the ending is a is slightly anticlimactic like i think they needed a better way to kill the shark um it does it feels like Escalation in these films is is always quite important, and I don't think it's the grandstanding ending, which is why I think it it would have felt flat regardless of whether Doctor Susan survived or or in this film sacrifices herself. Um, although I do like again the way that the sharks go for a second bite. They they always have they, <laughs> they, they seem they seemingly will always take you halfway up to your body. And then finish you off mm. with a big chomp on the legs. So uh, I do yeah. like that. It's tricky to follow George with, with the exploding shark. I mean, if you don't do it, it's kind of underwhelming. And if you do do it, you're kind of pinching from from the king of the shark movie. So again, it's really hard to do. It's a hard way to do it. And, you know, Spielberg was right to be like, Ugh, Peter Bensley wants me to drown it. How very uncinematic. Right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you have to find something that is you know, an explosive ending. Hence why they keep blowing up these sharks, I guess. Um, right. But no, I, I think I really like the the knowing self-referential beginning with the douchebag 90s kids. You know, I read somewhere yeah. that, um, I mean, again, this trivia stuff, it, it sometimes gets me... 
It's the same IMDb. Yeah, it sometimes makes me laugh. There, there's apparently there's been a discussion about why the sharks would be attracted to wine and not blood. And I just oh. think if you are thinking that the sh- – because the, the explanation being that the sharks are now so much smarter that they would know that we drink wine so that the human's there. And it's too far. Too far because that is not what Rennie Harlan's doing. No, something it, is in the water that is unnatural to the environment and therefore it's it's attracted yeah, to it. And that's it's, it's it's also it's for it's for us the audience, not for the shark. It's for us as the audience to be like, yeah. Oh, that's quite neat, because obviously it would normally be blood, but it's red wine that's spilt. Right. But it red wine looks like blood. it's it's Rennie Harlan setting you up for the tone of this movie, which is you think you're watching a shark movie that you've seen before, but we're going to do something a little bit different. Critics Corner. Yeah, Critics Corner. Go on, Matt. All right. Uh, this is a short one because uh, poor old Siskel was a little bit ill, I think, at the time. And uh, 99. So uh, there was someone filling in for him called Joyce Kulawick in this episode on YouTube that I found uh, mm. where her uh, Ebert and Joyce uh reviewed the film uh start with ebert he uh he said that it was a skillful thriller a Mm. neat package of terror sharks and special effects some of the sharks look like cartoons Mm. which is fair okay i'm with you so far uh in a genre where a lot of movies are retreads of the predictable deep blue sea keeps you guessing uh i think this was mostly in reference to sam jackson's death but Mm. there's a couple of things in there a few little surprises uh he says that it respects its genre and there's not a lot of character development or common sense but it's a well-made professional efficient movie wow rog has taken taken my summary and like doubled down on it i should have read it yeah yeah uh and yeah joyce came in with uh she said that sam jackson is saddled with the film's worst lines and i'm not sure if that's true but he's he's got a few few clunkers uh she said is it artful no it doesn't engage us in the deep way jaws shakes us down to our unconscious rennie could give joel schumacher some tips on how to direct big action scenes though oh Nice. Um, and she, she said that she knew what was happening, like geographically, I think, uh, and, and she could follow the plot throughout and she felt like Rennie did a good job with some of the, some of the direction there. So yeah, I, I only looked at that one, but. Yeah, no, I think uh, that, I think that's fair. And I think, um, you know, I guess that's what I was driving at when I said that Rennie Harlan's, uh, you know, he's a competent director because just knowing where you are in the space, you know, that is your job as a director. Like there is nothing worse than watching action sequences where you're just like, well, I have no concept of geography. Like right. who's where, who's line of sight. You don't have that problem with Deep Blue Sea. You can have many other problems with it. You can think it's goofy and stupid, but as far as just your nuts and bolts, what you expect from a competently made action film, you know exactly who's where and where the sharks are in relation mm-hmm. to our characters and i think that's that's you know that shouldn't be that shouldn't be dismissed as a given because my god have i seen plenty of films right. where i'm literally lost in the <laughs> the madness of the macro of where the film is so yeah i think that's i think that's fair well matt that that leads us then to uh to our final summary so um please tell me your final thoughts on deep blue sea and should our listeners Get back into the bargain bin and uh, and revisit it. Okay, it's hard to grade this one without considering what audiences are looking for. 
So I, I usually prefer not to recommend on the basis of it's a silly one, it's a laugh. So have pizza and a beer and. Uh, I, I want to separate those kinds of films from the truly great films, but you know, I've, I've kind of broken my rule. Um, it is fun. It's given me hours of pleasure over the years. Uh, this recent rewatch has tipped me into a slightly different camp though. Um, but I haven't forgotten my roots. I, I never owned this one personally. Uh, I, I didn't buy the DVD, which is quite revealing because I collected everything that from my childhood on DVD. Um, I always borrowed this one or watched it on TV. So perhaps it didn't strike a personal chord. Um, the dialogue is clunky. It's lacking in a human villain. Uh, I, I personally would have had Stellan and Susan as the two baddies in my version of this, as I mentioned before. Uh, sharks and monsters, creatures cannot be the only foe in these kinds of films. There needs to be human drama. Human conflict driven by emotion and uh, an emotion that we can all relate to something like greed, revenge, justice, selfishness, envy, you know, anything like that. It can't just be the creatures. A Dennis Nedry, shall we say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but even a John Hammond, you know, who, who's trying to do a good thing and, uh, ultimately placing everyone, including his grandchildren in danger. Um, and, and trying to kind of reconcile with that uh if if you want to rip off jurassic park then spend the time with the characters before they get thrust into the action don't be afraid of of boring your audience um you know you you have to put that work in otherwise you're not going to feel the satisfaction later uh there's not going to be enough uh empathy Uh, this one felt a bit rushed and haphazard uh no one is established in such a way that I would be particularly bothered if they died. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, it, it establishes that Thomas Jane cares about Susan and, and perhaps vice versa. But what it doesn't do is make us care about them. If the characters care about each other, that's one thing, but we, we must care about them. Uh, the relationships are not quite solid. Uh, we need to see more before the shit hits the fan, I think. But oddly, again, it's a film I've returned to many times over the years and I've never taken much issue with it until now. So I think placing it under a microscope for a movie podcast is maybe not uh, the way that this is going to survive. Maybe this film should be seen once when you've had a few beers um, with a few friends, with people who are not necessarily down to make fun of it, but who are just in a lighthearted mood and, then, you know, have a bottle of wine or whatever and, and have, have fun. Can I recommend it? Probably once if you're altered and uh, I've seen it a bunch of times. So I feel like I'd be totally hypocritical if I didn't, didn't give it at least a slight recommend. So um yeah, sorry if that's a bit muddled, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Guy. Well, all I'll say Matt, and listeners is who you're going to trust. Huh? Who are you going to trust me? Why? Because I'm trustworthy. <laughs> Um, listen, you were going to listen to the man who has recommended Lawnmower Man, and I think I also recommended Under Siege. Did I recommend Under Siege 2, Dark Territory? You did as an oddity of the action genre, and you could look at it as how to dissect it. I think, yes, I think like I said, watch it to, to learn how not to do it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm, um, I'm, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I think you, you're absolutely right. I think, um, 
I think actually the critics corner has pretty much nailed everything I was going to say. Um, I think you're right about the first 35 minutes before the shit hits the fan. They really needed to, to give us one character that we could at least latch onto out of those two leads, whether it be Carter, whether it be Dr. Susan, they had to land on one and they gave us neither. And unfortunately the, the, the actors that had been cast weren't able to bridge the gap either, which leaves us with no real human characters to invest in. So I totally, totally agree. Um, and I, and I think that, yeah, they've taken Jurassic Park, they've added a shark and, or sharks, and they've given you a real elevator, you know, pitch premise of smart sharks in a confined space, spamming a cam. I love these kind of movies. Humans trying to decipher the best way to get out of a really, really bad situation. They're my favorite. Um, but you're right. There isn't enough conflict within the group. There isn't enough. I, I do wonder if you'd had a human character that was as despicable as the sharks, whether that would have saved those th- first 35 minutes because you could have set it up. You could have, you could have had someone go turncoat because they never do. And I did think that was the missed opportunity. Like, go full in. If the doctor is the doctor. What if Stellan was the bad, the big bad, and Susan was kind of doing his bidding? He was manipulating her because she has connections to Alzheimer's. Yeah, you definitely could have done something like that. Um, I, I think that that might have been a way ahead. Um, it was just to give the film a, an actual dimension because it's very surface level. But it'd be interesting to see if you came in cold, whether or not you'd have that kind of fun... Obviously, you can't watch it in the cinema, but that kind of fun movie experience that you were describing, like you could passively watch this with mates, with alcohol, having a giggle, laughing at lines, point, you know, this is a Leonardo DiCaprio meme film where you can just point and be like, oh, the shark, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so I think that's where Deep Blue Sea lives. Right, Matt, where can our listeners, if they should oh. wish to get back into the aquatica water again uh where can they find deep blue sea <laughs> okay uh if you're in korea like me <laughs> uh and only me probably uh you can stream it on netflix and in america you can stream it on netflix in the uk uh you can stream it on virgin tv go that's the only place and then it's available to buy and rent in in the usual places yeah, yeah, it was on, I think it was on Amazon a few months ago, but it dropped off the, off the plot. So I think it does rotation, mm. to be honest with you. I think it, it's absolutely like a Netflix, Amazon streaming oh, service yeah. kind of film because this is the kind of expo, expendable kind of movie that people can watch, as I say, of an evening mm. when they're flicking and they go, Ooh, well, that's Deep Blue Sea. So I think yeah. that's where, that's where it should live. So hopefully it'll be back on, but you can, you can rent this. It's available everywhere. Um, you can pick up the DVD or the Blu-ray, but I would suggest you just wait until it's on a free streaming service, which I'm sure it will do in the near future. If you enjoy the show and want uh, to show your support, then please like, subscribe, pen a review on whichever podcasting platform you listen to us on. We would really appreciate it. We have no paywalls, no subscriptions here. It's all free of charge. All we ask is loyalty. Spread the gospel, as the preacher would say. Spread the good word of the Rewind Movie Podcast. That would be absolutely fantastic of you. I think that's it, Matt. I I will say, listeners, that we it will be me and Matt one more time round until the gang are back together. We're going to do a very, very special series 
I look, we just come up with series titles. They don't mean anything, <laughs> yeah. by the way. They really don't. It's just our chance to be somewhat creative now that we're in like boring jobs. Um, so we're going to do our Nobody Does It Better series, which is actually just talking about Roger Moore Bond films, aren't we? In preparation for No Time to Die. Yes. We're going to raise one of our eyebrows and then raise the other and then maybe even raise them both at the same time and uh, t- talk about the the late, great Roger Moore. We're going to talk about um, uh, all of the films that he uh, he worked on uh, encompassing his, his career as Bond. Uh, so hopefully we can get that out before uh, No Time to Die. We'll, we'll do our absolute best. I am looking forward to revisiting it, Matt, with you and revisiting yeah. a time when a, a 78-year-old man plays Bond and he can he can quite happily have three ladies within a 90 minute running time all mm. aged in their 20s so that'll be fun <laughs> this was great thanks for uh thanks for discussing this one thanks for picking it and uh maybe it was one revisit too many for me but uh I I still really enjoyed it and uh it was great chatting. Well, we will say our goodbyes in our deepest, bluest sense. So um, my world's deep blue, killer's got to eat too. Looking for human flesh to rip my teeth through. Other fish in the sea, but barracudas ain't equal to a half-human predator created by a needle. That doesn't even rhyme. It's Galley in Glasgow signing out. Did someone order the fish? It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks to listen, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Do 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 do